This is a bit unusual, this message, in the sense that today's message is actually the conclusion of a 15-month series uh, that, that we did up at our church. In, in 2012, we did a walk-through-the-Bible shared journey thing, where as a church, we agreed we're going to read through the Bible in a year. We used the RMM, the Robert Murray McShane, McShane uh, reading plan, and, uh, and I said, what I'm going to do on Sundays, I'm going to preach backwards so that I'll be preaching every Sunday on something you read in the week previous. And then we designed our small groups around that so you'd get together in small groups and we made some online resources available. So I was sending out frequently asked questions throughout the week. And uh, so we did that for the entire year. And then at the end of the year, we had accumulated a lot of questions. Because one of the things I learned by doing that experience is that it is amazing to me how few evangelical church, uh, how few evangelicals and evangelical churches, but let's talk individuals right now, how few evangelical individuals actually read the whole Bible. A lot of red-letter Christians out there, right, who, you know, I'm just, just keep to the basics, don't want to be a controversialist, so, you know, I just read the words of Jesus as though he weren't controversial. Uh, but uh, they, they kind of have this very narrow canon of, you know, 17 or 18 passages or concepts that they know very well. But then when you get them reading through the Bible from the left cover to the right cover, they encounter issues all over the place that they've never dealt with before in their Christian life. And it doesn't matter whether they've been Christians for, you know, five minutes or five years or 20 years. Uh, they're like, I've never really wrestled that one to the ground. I've, I've, I've bumped into it a few times. I've never really wrestled with it. I just kind of skim over it and, and, and then drop down into the next comfortable issue. And so we kind of accumulated all these questions and we decided what we need now is like a wrap-up series. After 12 months of reading the Bible, you need some like therapy. Uh, well, how does this all go together? And, and my mind is all split on some of these major issues. So we decided we would take 12 weeks and do a kind of a systematic wrap-up where we would say, okay, in, in this passage, in this passage, in this passage, in this passage, we ran into the sovereignty of God. We believe in that. Awesome. But in this passage, in this passage, in this passage, we ran into the reality of human responsibility. How does that go together? How does that fit? Because there's some people who park more naturally in the one than the other. They say, well, I'm a sovereignist. I believe God is in charge. You know, that's why I don't pray for my neighbors and I don't share the gospel. Because, you know, if God wanted my neighbors to be saved, he would have ordained from the foundation of the world that they would be saved. It doesn't need help from me, right? And so, you know, you got people parked over here. And then you got other people who are out there and they're all nervous and anxious and, oh, what are we going to do? Johnny hasn't come to Christ. And, and so maybe I got to try harder. And maybe if the lights were a little brighter, maybe if we had a smoke machine and, uh, you know, they're getting all concerned. And, and, you, and, you, and you say, whew, just everyone settle down. How does this all go together? And, and so we worked our way through some of the seeming, some of the tensions are real, you know, the, uh, and then some of them are just apparent tensions uh, and we, we worked through those. Now, last week, and I told Tim when he asked me if I could come here and, and speak while he was on holidays, I said, well, I can and I would love to, but um, because we have two campuses, I preach at 9.30 at our main campus, and then I preach again at 11 o'clock at, at our second campus, and I'm not done there till 1, uh, so then I'd have to leave right from there and come here. So I said, I can't, like, write a new message or anything. It would just have to be whatever I'm preaching on that morning. So you have got the last two weeks 
of a 15-month series, uh, which probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Uh, and, and last week, I felt bad for you because we were bringing you in at the deep end of the pool. Uh, the, we, we dealt with the tension between when we meet in Scripture, the equality of men and women, but then we also meet the differentiation, the different roles. That was easily the most controversial and offensive message in the 15-month series, and, and that was our introduction to one another. So I'm just thankful that anyone is here uh, this morning because... Your own people will give you permission to be offensive because they know you love them and, and they know you've agonized over this text. But when you introduce yourself to people with something like that, they just think you're mean and nasty. Uh, so I appreciate that you're here. Uh, this, this week's tension, we've been working, the way we did it in our church is we set it up with, we started talking about three major tensions in theology proper, meaning inside the internal character and nature of God, Here's some things we need help understanding, how they fit together. And, and then we talked about some of the tensions that we see with respect to how God has saved us. And, and then we dealt with some of the tensions that the, that in more the realm of ethics. Well, you're supposed to do this, but also this. And, and this is important, but don't forget that. And, and how those fit together. And what we noticed is that a lot of these ethical tensions can be traced back to something we discussed in the character of God. For example... Uh, we, we talked about how when we do ministry and mission, it's important that we balance appropriately word ministry and deed ministry. Don't think you can just go dig a well in Africa and you've, you've done kingdom work. N- not, not if you haven't explained to people how this is a sign of Jesus Christ and, 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 and how when we're saved in him, there is a wellspring of, of, of life and, and eternal water within us. Don't think you can just hand people some bread and think you've done kingdom work unless you explain to them how Christ is the bread of life. And and, and it's very important they understand that word ministry has priority over deed ministry, but that the one adorns and commends the other. So we work through that. And and we notice how, isn't that interesting because in the internal character of God, there's this justice piece, but also this mercy piece. So word ministry and deed ministry in the realm of how we interact with one another, can be traced back to who God is. And likewise, when we talked about men and women, we talked about how humanity is a unity. Men and women are equal. They're one. They're two bits of the same thing, but different. And isn't that who God is? Isn't there one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So the oneness and threeness, the the unity and the diversity in God shows up in who we are created in his image and how we're to relate to one another as people. Well, get to the last uh, bit of this series today and, and we find that once again, this tension at the human level is rooted in some things that have to be held together in theology proper in terms of who God is. And it takes us actually right back to the start. I designed this series to be a bit of a circular series and that it, we would come right back to the start. And, and so the first thing we talked about was the tension between the sovereignty of God and the fact that he has made us humanly responsible. We are responsible human beings. Whatsoever comes to pass, comes to pass because God decreed it. And, and yet, we make real choices, freely made. Has it all fit together? We talked about that in the character of God at the first of this. And, and then today, I want to come back around at the level of human beings, at the level of our interaction one with another, how does this tension play out? I, I want to talk to you about the tension 
between the fight of faith and the rest of faith. Put another way, I want to talk to you about the balance in our thinking between effort and trust. Because you see both in the Bible. There are all kinds of actives in the Bible. There are commands. There are stories about battles and people strapping stuff on and going out to face giants and, and doing fell deeds of glory. And yet there are also then all these passives in the Bible. Things that can only be done to us and never by us. Things we have to receive as a gift and can never grab hold of by striving or ambition. How does that all fit together? Obviously, it's the height of foolishness to let go and let God. I I trust and pray that none of you have that on a little bracelet on your arm or, or anything like that. Let go and let God, that's nonsense, right? I trust you understand that. But equally obvious is the fact that we walk by faith, not by sight. So how does this all go together? What's the balance between fighting and resting in the kingdom of God? Well, happily in the Bible, these tensions are often uh, discovered together in the same passage, side by side. Unlike the tension that we looked at last week between the issue of the equality of men and women, but then also their differentness, there we had to sort of wrestle with how does Galatians 3 in the New Testament, which talks about the essential equality of men and women under the gospel, how does that go with, say, 1 Timothy 2, which talks about the differences that are to be preserved in the gospel? Or how does Genesis 1, which emphasizes the equality of men, how does that go with Genesis 2? Well, unlike that, with this issue, we're often meeting these tensions side by side in the same passage. And that dictates a little bit of a different approach. Open your Bible this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is one of those tricky books uh, to find, largely because we don't read it very often. Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're going to start reading at verse 7 and keep reading through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Drop down to verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We sang that song. Uh, God of uh, angel armies, right? Rem- that, keep that in mind. Our God has legions of angels at his disposal. He who is with us is always greater than he who is in the world. There are more with us than with them. Remember the Lord and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Right here in this passage, we meet this very biblical balance. We prayed and we set a guard. Remember the Lord and fight. The battle is the Lord's. Now let's go sharpen our swords and shine up our shields. Right? The the fact that the battle is the Lord's doesn't mean that you don't have to fight. 
It doesn't even mean that you won't die. It just means that God is sovereign over the outcome and God is good. God God gave the Israelites the promised land. But that didn't mean that they didn't have to strap on their armor and fight battle after battle after battle. Now, without the Lord, they didn't have a chance. But without fighting, they didn't receive that which was promised. So they prayed and they fought. And this pattern continues into the New Testament. Open your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 15.10. We just had that read. The Apostle Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me has not been in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Now we see lots of grace in that verse, don't we? But we also see lots of hard work presented side by side without apology. The Apostle Paul sees no contradiction between resting in grace and working your fingers to the bone for the glory of God in Christ. Sounds a lot like Nehemiah. We prayed and we set a guard. We remembered the Lord and we fought. So that's the tension. Old Testament and New Testament. It's the logical outworking in the human realm of that first tension in the inner character of God himself. God is sovereign. Whatsoever comes to pass, comes to pass because he decreed it from eternity past. And yet, and yet, human beings are morally responsible. We make real choices. What we do really matters. Without any, will, without any violence being done to our will and want, we really do make choices. We really do decide things. We're not puppets. God does not beat us to our actions. I realize this isn't a Baptist church. Um, and I thought about replacing this with a quote. It's essentially the same as the one that's in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Because I don't know how much history you know or how much history you care about, but um, the, the Baptist Confession of Faith is actually a Baptist version of the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, because Baptists were Puritans alongside of the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. And so they basically took the Westminster Confession, which uh, was the Puritan Confession of Faith in the 1640s, and they just changed the section on baptism because they... Uh, utilized credo baptism or, or believer's baptism and, and congregational church government, but all the other sections are essentially the same. Uh, but this is the confession we use or that you know, we recognize as a historic confession in our church, but this is exactly the same as I understand you. I, I remember on your website, I think it said you, you hold to the Westminster Confession or that you make use of it in some way. So this would be your story as well. Listen to how our common grandparents... Uh, spoke about this issue. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein. Meaning God didn't make you sin and God didn't help you sin. 
Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. God doesn't beat you one way or the other. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness and accomplishing his decree. God uses the freely willed action and work of secondary agents. That's you and me. We're secondary agents. It's not quite as exciting as being a secret agent, but that's who you are. You're a secondary agent. And God uses secondary agents to accomplish his sovereign will. That is the consistent theme of the Bible, and that has been the testimony of the Christian church. Every branch of it you belong, that has been the majority view of the Christian church throughout the many centuries. And the problem isn't really explaining the tension, to be perfectly honest with you. The problem is knowing how to live in light of it. All right? Let me make a bit of an analogy here. The, the, the problem isn't lighting the road, as it were. This road is well lit by the Bible and by church history. The problem is keeping your car out of the ditch. When I was a young youth pastor, I was young and poor and just actually, I had this car when I was, my first paid gig in ministry was when I was in seminary. I lived not too far from here. I lived in a little subdivision called Caring Place, not too far from here and attended church here, and my first paid gig was as the uh, youth intern at King Bible Church. And uh, <clears throat> I remember I had a car at that time. Uh, it was a 1983 Volkswagen Rabbit. And uh, this church ruined my car because uh, I was always driving around these youth, these young people. And we had this one kid. He, uh, he went on to play some version of college football. I can't remember where. He's huge. His name was Steven. And uh, he literally went to open the, the front door of my car, and it was locked, and he just pulled the handle off. Like, this kid was freakishly large. And uh, youth ministry is bad in your car, because uh, you're poor, and your car's not very good to begin with, right? And, uh, but my car had all kinds of problems. I think it actually it was possessed by a demon, I think. And um, it, uh, it pulled to the left. It, uh, it, there was some problem with the alignment, and I was too poor to get it fixed, so... It just pulled to the left. And anytime I took, took my hands off the steering wheel, it changed lanes of its own volition. And, uh, which is bad, because that either puts you in the path of oncoming traffic or it puts you in the ditch on the other side of the road. A lot of human beings are like that. We have a natural drift away from this truth and tension into one ditch on one side or the other. Some of us are inclined to drift away from this tension in the direction of pragmatism and faithlessness, right? We're inclined to charge off into action to forget about the sovereignty of God. We're going to make it happen. We're going to rent a smoke machine, and we are going to get this done, and we're going to use words like excellence and cultural exegesis, and, and you will see what we will do for the kingdom of God and his glory. Uh, others have a natural drift in the other direction. They have a natural drift towards unthinking sentimentality that causes us to pray and never to do. Both of these ditches are equally destructive to the cause of biblical faith. And, and so what I want to do this morning is lay down, or this afternoon, is lay down some rumble strips on the side of the road. You know rumble strips? 
Rumble strips are those, the bumpy, bumpy things on the side of the highway that let you know whether you have fallen asleep and you have begun drifting in the direction of the ditch. I want to help you realize when you're coming too close to a dangerous ditch. First of all, I want to help you ask, when does effort become self-reliance and legalism? Now, this is the This is the rumble strip that the action people need to know about. This is going to be helpful for you if you are a type A personality or if you think in terms of Myers-Briggs, if you're an ENTJ, right? If if you're going to make it happen, if, if, if you like to pull yourself up by straps that supposedly are on your boots or if you like to get it done and if you like those kinds of slogans, this is the, the rumble strip you need to pay attention to. These are the signs you may be losing this tension and falling into a very dangerous ditch. Number one, when you spend more time planning than praying. One of the first books that was given to me uh, in ministry was actually given to me. My, my first real job in ministry after being the youth intern here was the fellow that had been the, the associate pastor here. He went to another church and uh, he invited me to come and be the youth guy at that church. And, and uh, his name was Dave Horn. He'd been here. And uh, he, he gave me a book. And this book was by George Barna back in the day. And uh, it was one of the first books that George Barna had written. And uh, it was a book on uh, pastors in ministry, the contemporary status of the clergy was basically the, what the book was about. And Barna had surveyed countless pastors in North American evangelicalism. And then he kind of laid out who they are and just in generalities. One of the things he said that shocked me, and I still have this book on my shelf. I'm not a believer in George Barna, but I I like books and I don't throw away books. Um, One of the things that he said in that book that shocked me was that the average Christian pastor in 1993 spent just 25 minutes a day in prayer. 25 minutes. That was back in 1993. More recently, I've seen two other studies, one that put the number at 12 minutes, one at eight. So whichever of those studies is right, we're clearly heading fast in the wrong direction. Over the last 30 years, pastoral ministry in North America has become increasingly pragmatic, meaning we don't ask anymore, what is right? What saith the Lord? Now we ask, what works? What, what brings them in? What color of carpet is most appealing to newcomers? And you laugh and you say, well, surely no one asks those kinds of questions. My first three jobs in ministry were in seeker churches. Everybody in the early 90s was into the seeker thing, right? That was our answer to declining church membership. In the 90s, we started realizing, because of people like George Barna, who counted, uh, that there were fewer people in our churches than there had been in the 60s. And the knee-jerk reaction of the evangelical church was to shift into pragmatism. Why aren't they coming? Is it because they don't like our carpet? Is it because uh, our nurseries aren't big enough? Is it, is it because our churches don't have good signage? And, uh, and so in the first church that I worked in, we actually had a pastor whose job it was to think through all those issues. He was called pastor of assimilation and integration. His job was to figure out what color of carpet is most appealing to newcomers and what kind of signage we needed in the parking lot to get people in and then so that they could find the nursery. That was a pastor's job in that church to research signage and carpet. That is pragmatism. That's asking the question, what works? 
And that has been increasingly the focus in pastoral dialogue over the last 30 years. And pastors are spending far less time reading God's Word, far less time on their faces before the Lord seeking God, and far more time casting vision and studying culture. Now, how did we get here? Martin Luther, who's known as the father of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote over 500 books. He launched the Protestant Reformation. He raised up a whole generation of Christian pastors, easily one of the busiest men of his generation, and yet he was known far and wide as a man of prayer. And he was heard one time to remark, I have so much work to do today that I must spend the first two hours in prayer. Two hours. Now our pastors spend eight minutes, or if you have one of the good ones, 12 minutes. Is it any wonder that we're losing power in the church and influence in the culture? Now, I've never, ever met a pastor who would say out loud that he did not believe that God is strong enough to save sinners or build his church. Never have I heard a pastor say such a thing. But if you only spend 10 minutes a day in prayer, isn't that exactly what you're saying? If if, if you'd rather read books written by corporate CEOs than the Bible... Isn't that exactly what you're saying? If you know more about Steve Jobs than you do about Ezra or Nehemiah or Jeremiah, isn't that exactly what you're saying? That's not how the first generation of church leaders talked. Remember Acts 6 in your Bible? In Acts 6, the church is growing. Things are going great. Ministry is expanding. Things are getting busier and busier. And there was a huge temptation in that moment to redirect the disciples into more practical things. But they didn't bite. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, they didn't say that these new ministries were bad. They didn't say that these new ministries should stop. They just said, we better find a way of organizing this such that we are not distracted from our primary duty, which is prayer and the ministry of the Word. Pastoral ministry in the 21st century evangelical church is drowning in pragmatism. And many Christians are along for the ride. When you have a problem or face a challenge is your first instinct to take it to the Lord in prayer. When the storms of life begin buffeting your little boat, what do you do first? Do you row like crazy for the shore? Do you check the stars, make sure you've read the compass right? Or do you go and get Jesus? Because he's with you in the boat. And only he has authority over wind and wave. He's God of the storm. And if he's not your first call then you're already in this ditch. Secondly, effort becomes self-reliance and legalism when you begin to focus more on outcomes than on obedience. Now, obviously, this rumble strip is connected to the first. Because if you focus more on planning and on methods and on programs than you do on prayer and seeking the Lord, then obviously and quickly you'll become focused on outcomes rather than simple obedience. You'll start thinking and talking as though what we do can and should secure certain positive outcomes that we desire, right? Let me illustrate that. 
people who lose this tension in this direction start saying things like, if we present the gospel in culturally accessible ways, our church will grow. Right? If we dim the lights just so, if we play that certain song, if the gifted person presents the gospel in just such a way, surely people will come to Christ. And if that sounds like something from the shallow end of the evangelical pool, you know, yes, there are people who talk like that, but surely not us. There is actually a way that people in the deeper end of the pool fall into the same error. There's a more spiritual way of saying the same ignorant things. A more spiritual version of this error would be to say, if we pray for two hours before the service, if we fast once a week, if, if we have some speaking in tongues during the service, then surely the Holy Spirit will fall and we'll have a powerful experience of His presence. But anytime you are connecting human actions with certain outcomes, you've fallen into this ditch. This is not how people in the Bible talked. Listen to how these people talk. Tell me if you can spot the difference. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 14, love this story. You know the story. Jonathan, the Philistines. Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be. Of course, it may not be. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. In the New Testament, listen to how they talked. Acts 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Apostle Paul preached a sermon. I'm going to guess it was a pretty good one. I'm going to guess that it was excellent, right? One of the sure signs that you're in danger of this ditch is if you throw around the word excellence more than you throw around the word holiness, right? Do you, do you ever meet people who, who they, you know, they say, you know, always a bit of apo- apologetically, you know, not saying that prayer doesn't matter, not saying any of that, just really committed to excellence. You know, we just want to be excellent in all we do, which usually means people can't sing very well, don't get to sing. People who can't do, lead, you know, speak very well, they don't get to do this. And, and it usually means we spend an awful lot of time thinking about lights and, and, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it usually means we're just slowly beginning to introduce a smoke machine and, uh, because that's excellent. And, uh, and, 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 and it's very important that we do things in an excellent way. Never been able to understand why exactly that's super important, but it is. And, and so here in, in, in this story, we have obviously excellence. I would imagine if the Apostle Paul preached a sermon, it was excellent, maybe even awesome, right? And, and, but then look at what the Bible says. It text doesn't say, because the sermon was excellent, because it was rooted in a careful exegesis of culture, and because Barnabas, while no one was looking, moved forward a smoke machine, right? Because all of that, people came to Jesus for salvation. doesn't say that. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. People in the Bible understood that outcomes belong to the sovereignty of God. You can do it really well and see no results. 
and you can do it really poorly. See all kinds of results. Now, even if that sounds true to you, and even if you believe it to be true, one of the things I can pretty much assure you is that if you go into ministry, God will sooner or later convince you of its truth. I think people in ministry particularly are inclined to believe the lie that whether we do it right or not is related to whether there are results or not. And I'm not making an argument for sloppiness or stupid, okay? We'll get to that later. We're on this side of the ditch right now. And, and, and what I'm saying is ministers particularly, people in ministry are, and I'm, I'm saying this to myself, I preach the sermon to me on Tuesday and then I share it with you on Sunday after it's broken my spirit, right? That's how it works. So I've already been convicted of this. What happens is people in ministry, they get inclined to think, if I do it well, I will see results. And so you actually begin to expect that. And I can, I can tell you, I can honestly tell you that I've had the experience, I write my sermons on Tuesday, and I, I have come to the end of a sermon, and I just feel the finger of God is on this. This is going to change, you know, the 95 Thesis. People are going to be tacking this up on bulletin boards all over the Internet. And uh, we're going to start a new Reformation. And I'm coming to the end, and I can feel it. I'm doing this, because that's what I do. I type, and I make the mouth noises all at the same time. And then I'm coming to the end, and I'm, bang! Control-Alt-Save. This is going to change the world. And, and then I get up and I start preaching it and it's like a spirit of deadness has fallen on my people. And I'm looking out and people, there's some dude in the back checking the sports on his phone. You know I can see you. Why? You know. Like if you're not looking at me and you're looking down at this and you're doing this, nobody listens to a sermon that way. You're checking the internet. You're finding out how the Leafs did last night and no one is paying attention. And I'm up there and I'm thinking, are you? dead. Have you no soul? This is life-changing stuff. The fire of God is on this. Nothing. Nothing. And, and, and then other weeks I've had the experience where I've written a message and I think, this stinks. It's so bad. Right? It's, it's true, but it's dull. I mean, sometimes, particularly as we do, we generally just preach through books of the Bible. So sometimes you just, you preach on what's next. Sometimes what's next is fascinating and controversial and you know people are going to be leaning in and they're paying attention either because they hate you or they love it. One of the two, but they're paying attention. And then other times, it's just there, right? Don't sin. Sinning is bad. And you're like, oh, what am I going to do with that? And, uh, and, and so you get up and you preach the message. Sinning is, is bad. You're feeling apologetic for how boring your message is and people are broken. They come to you afterwards and they say, that message changed my life. And they say, when you said this, and you're like, I don't remember saying that. I think that was in the bulletin. I don't know what happened there. And the Holy Spirit touched their heart. There's no explanation for it. Other than that, God loves to remind people like me that results have really nothing to do with people like me. You know, we have to be so careful because we are inclined to think that they do. We're inclined to think that the, the missionary in Japan who labored for 20 years and saw three converts must have been doing it wrong, whereas the missionary in Latin America who was there for three years and saw 2,000 converts, he must be doing it right. And so we ask him to write a book about how to do missions. The guy who labored in Japan, we ask him to sit in the back of the conference. Right? We've got to be real careful. We are never permitted 
to draw those lines. And when we do, we only give evidence that we're already face down in this ditch. Now, parents, that's true in ministry, but not many of us are in ministry. Right? And I mean vocationally. We're obviously all in ministry. But we're all parents, or most of us are parents in this room. So let me shift gears for a moment. Parents, do you understand what this means? This means you can do it all right. And your kids can still walk away from the Lord. It means on the other side, conversely, that every once in a while, in fact, frequently and paradigm-shatteringly often, we will see children wondrously converted out of fabulously dysfunctional homes. They will be wonderfully, marvelously, truly converted, and they will serve the Lord and bring Him glory. We, we, uh, one of the things we do at our, at our branch plant um, is on Thursday nights, we do a family foundations night. That's what it's called. And it's basically just family devotion. So um, one of the things we've recognized, Aurelia has the highest percentage of single-parent homes in Ontario outside of a native reserve. That's, that's what we've been told. And there's a whole complex of reasons why that would be, but it, it is. So we've done a lot of ministry specifically targeted at that, at that issue, that demographic. One of the things we do is, as I said, on Thursday night in our branch, we do this program that sounds very unsexy and uninnovative, but God's hand is on it. We meet for dinner at 6 o'clock. We set up in these big tables. We eat dinner together. And then we split up into the, our, put the tables into the four corners. We gather all the kids together. And, and I lead in a little brief family devotion time where I introduce a topic. And then we split into these four tables. And, and we have four or five um, or six, depending on how big the group is, different dads in the church lead family devotions at a table that will include their kids and the kids of maybe three or four single moms. So on any given Thursday night, I might give the intro, and there may be 40 kids sitting in a circle, and then we've split into these tables, and there might be, you know, some of my kids, and then eight or nine other kids. And dad leads in family devotions. And I can tell you, we have seen some kids from the most fabulously dysfunctional homes where, you know, Dad's a drug dealer, mom's a drug addict, or if there's a dad, there's usually not, or maybe there's five or six rotating dads, who knows. Uh, we've got some sibling sets where there's one mom and four kids and like six different dads, and I'm not even sure how the math on that works. And, uh, but it's fabulously dysfunctional. And you will see kids gloriously, wondrously, and truly converted out of homes like that. And not just converted, but persevering in the faith, growing, becoming these wonderful, delightful little kids. And you just think, how is this happening? How is this happening? Right? And as parents, we have to understand, it is simply, if ever you catch yourself thinking, if I do this, because I talk to Christian parents all the time, and they'll tell me, usually it's Christian parents in their 40s or 50s, whose kids have drifted away. And they'll say, but pastor, I did it all right. We spanked our kids. Seriously. Put big, shiny red marks on their backsides for the Lord. We spanked our kids. We, we, we had limits, reasonable limits. You know, an hour and a half of TV, then it's off. 
right? We had internet filters. And, and, uh, and we did family devotions. We even sent our kids to Christian school. We did everything right. And still our kids, they walked away. And, and when we say things like that, we're actually indicating that we don't really believe this. We don't really believe that God is sovereign over the outcomes. We think if, if we do it right, then we're in charge of the outcomes. And, and if we see bad outcomes, i.e. other people's kids, we assume they did it wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Now, am I saying you should not care anymore? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is this. Moms and dads, do it right. Do everything the Bible says you should do to raise your kids. Discipline them, love them, teach them, instruct them, provide for them as best you can. And then when you've done everything you can, fall on your face before the Lord and beg for his mercy upon your children. That's what I'm saying. And I'm also saying, don't you ever give up on that kid who's been saved out of a dysfunctional home. Don't ever say, don't, and I catch myself saying this, I've said it before and I've repented of it and I repent now if I've ever forgotten to repent of it. Don't ever let yourself say, that kid doesn't have a chance. Have you ever said that? Oh, I've said that. You know, we, we have these kids, they come and, and I'll, I've caught myself saying, oh man, that kid doesn't have a chance. His mom's a psycho or his mom's a drug addict or his mom's this, that. And I repent of that. Man, I'm not, I'm not sovereign over those outcomes. I praise God that he's sovereign over those outcomes. Do your best, moms and dads. Do everything you should. And then fall on your face and beg God for mercy on your child. Outcomes belong to the sovereignty of God. Third, you're in danger of falling into this ditch when you rely more on external versus internal motivations to manage yourself and others. Now, notice the word rely there, right? Because obviously external motivations have their place. In the Bible, we see that. If you read Romans 13, you can't get away from the fact that external motivations have their place, right? In Romans 13, the king does not bear the sword in vain. Fear of getting your head chopped off is a wonderful motivator uh, for civic behavior, isn't it? And, And there is a place for that. When I was a teenager, there were many stupid things I thought about doing, but I knew that if I did them, just because of the way God is with me, I would get caught. I, I, I tried to sin a few times uh, real hard as a teenager, but my mom uh, was a, a bit of a crazy person in the sense that she was super vigilant uh, with me and, and, I, and she just had some sort of creepy, spidey sense. One time I, I wanted to sneak out of my house and um, go to this party that my mom uh, had told me that I wasn't allowed to go to because she knew there weren't going to be parents there and there was going to be alcohol there. And, and in, in my twisted little mind, I thought, well, I don't mean to drink. I just, there's this girl there. Her name was Sarah. I really liked her. And um, I wanted to go. And, and, and so I told my mom that I wasn't going to go to the party. And I went to bed on time. Mm, first mistake. Uh, <laughs> Went to bed on time, and my parents are creatures of habit, and they always, they, at 10 o'clock, they, they would go into their rooms and watch the news. That's what they told me, and I pray that was true. And, uh, and they always turned on the news, and, and, I, and they had this long hallway to their room, and they closed the door, and I could hear the news in there. And so then I um, 
had a like a little roof uh, outside my window. And so I, I crawled out on the roof. And in the sunshine, I had tested this. And I could jump off the roof down to the uh, little garden there below. And, and I was going to be on my way. And so I waited till I heard the news nice and loud, gave a few minutes. And then I opened my window, got out onto the, to the shelf of my little window ledge there. And uh, it was dark now, though, because it's 10 o'clock at night. And I couldn't see the ground. And it was a rock garden. And I was like, oh, man, if I jump now, I'm going to break my ankle. And I'm, I'm leaning out like this over the edge, and I can't see it. I'm like, nuts. And uh, so I, I just thought, you know what? Boldness is the key. And I just, I, I just came back in, and I just went straight out the front door and ran as fast as I could across the farmer's field to, to where this party was going on. It was going on at Lloydtown Road in the 400. There used to be a farm there. It burnt down. Uh, but anyway, that's where uh, this party was going to be. Anyway, I'm at the party making some small talk with Sarah. Woo! And then uh, started running home. And sure enough, my dad's been out looking for me in the car. He's driving around. And, and I see the set of lights coming to me. And then it's coming around back. And I'm like, oh, no. And I get in the car. And my dad opens up the thing. He's just getting. He says, your mom wants to talk to you. Turns out my mom had this spidey sense. She knew I was going to do it. She was in the rock garden standing right below the little thing there with, with a broom. And her plan was when I jump down, she's going to hit me with the broom. And she's a freakish woman. I love her. She's retired. They actually go to my church now. She sits there and smiles. And... and um, but wow, she was an intense lady and uh, all kinds of things going on with wooden spoons and wow. And, and so fear of those kinds of things happening to me kept me more righteous than I wanted to be in high school. There is absolutely a place for that. Moms and dads, there is a place for that. Well, maybe not that, but there is, there is maybe not the broom and the wooden spoon, but there, there is a place for external motivations to manage behavior, isn't there? For ourselves and for our kids. But if you're a Christian and if you've lived for longer than a weekend, you know that the internal desires of a sinful heart are stronger than any external motivation you can bring to bear. You know that. The, the Bible says that. The Bible says that, that our inclination in the direction of sin and stupid is stronger than all the external restraints of even the law of God, which is itself good. Even the law of God, as an external restriction, was not stronger than our inward bent towards sin and stupid. It's not enough. Uh, I've been uh, doing some you know, doing some reading, and, and I'm a... I was, I'm involved in some stuff with our denomination, and our, our denominations, like every other denomination, has got its pros and cons, but it's, it's drifting on some stuff, and I'm involved in a bit of a renewal movement. And so I've been doing some research on what we used to believe about stuff and trying to figure out how we got here now, because there's a lot of drift. And uh, so I was reading some of our old theology, and I was doing this on Saturday. Um, in our old the- theological source, we used to have an entire chapter on inability, Inability. And it's still in our old confession of faith, but nobody believes it anymore. We used to have an entire chapter on inability, which, which was a chapter talking about how the human heart, human beings do what they want. You know that, right? 
We, we do what we want. The problem is most of us want what is hurtful to ourselves and what robs God of glory. And, and, and we can try and we can motivate and we can put up limits and we can punish ourselves and we can fast and we can do all that. But at the end of the day, sinful desires are like a universal acid that eats through every restraint we can impose on ourselves. It's called the inability. Until God changes what we want so that we want what brings him glory and is for our good, then we're never free. Now, that's what we used to believe. We used to teach on those things. I wonder if we still believe that. These things that really dictate holiness, they are not an issue of external motivations. They're not an issue of restraints. They're an issue of internal desires. Internal passions. And those things are the gift of God. They're the work of the Holy Spirit in us. John 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Romans 5 tells us the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Love of God is a gift. Hatred of sin is a gift. They are things received in faith. We used to use the term, they are evangelical graces meaning the things that God gives us, not things that we achieve through striving or effort. And so one of the signs that you're sliding into this ditch is when you begin to rely on external motivations to manage yourself and others. You begin to put more faith in your accountability partner, right, or your AA group or your internet filter than you do in the Holy Spirit. Right? I talked to a lot of young men and who are maybe, the, maybe their issue is pornography. We have a ton of uh, men that we work with that, that, that deal with pornography. We have a ton of women who, who deal with alcoholism. I can't tell you, uh, I won't get into all that, but we, I can't tell you the number of women in our church uh, who've come to faith because one of the ministries we started in our church was this ministry called Recover uh, that, that deals with addiction from a Christian perspective. We have had a ton of people come to Christ uh, through this ministry, and most of them are women. And, and when I talk to either these men or these women, when I talk to a young man, I say, what are you doing? Like, tell me how you're managing this addiction. They always tell me about external stuff. Well, I got an accountability partner. Oh, good. And that is a good thing. And I, say, and, and I, and I installed an, an internet filter. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And, and if I talk to women, they say, well, I joined, I joined uh, AA. And I... Um, Changed the route I drive home so I don't pass by the LCBO. Excellent. Wonderful. Wonderful. But if you put more faith in those external restraints than you do in the Holy Spirit, you've got a problem. And, and you are setting yourself up for disappointment. Because I have never yet in 20 years of ministry seen somebody overcome an addiction with a group or a filter, or an accountability partner. Eventually, their desire for stupid and destructive things will be stronger than all those restraints. Depending on the strength of the person, it takes longer. Some, it's six minutes. I joined a group, and I committed sin. I committed sin at the group uh, sometimes, right? Sometimes six minutes, sometimes six months, sometimes six years. I've never yet seen it work but I've seen the Holy Spirit change people. I've seen the Holy Spirit change people who had no hope. So I'm not saying you don't use those things. I'm saying you don't rely on those things.
Think about your kids again for a second, moms and dads. Do you ever catch yourself thinking that you can grow and sanctify your kids more by strict rules and stringent sanctions than by helping them to be truly saved and filled with the Holy Spirit? Right? How many parents do you think... Do you know who, who think that they're raising their kids and they're protecting them from evil because they've, they've cut the cable and there's no internet and, and moms and dads are, are homeschooling them and I'm not opposed to that. Uh, and, and they've, you know, they're living in a cabin in the woods far away from all boys and temptation. And then what happens? Is that foolproof? Eventually she has to move out. Eventually she's got to go to university. Right? And if you've put all your effort into external censorship and control and none of your effort into real conversion and being filled with the Holy Spirit, eventually the acid of her desire for stupid and harmful things will be stronger than all the habits of righteousness you have imposed on her. If you find yourself in that place where you're relying on those things, turn back and repent. Now, obviously, there's another side to this issue. We'll deal with it quicker. I think it's probably quicker because in the first half of that message, I was talking to myself, right? Uh, I, I recognize in myself, I'm more of a type A personality. I am an ENTJ, and, and I am inclined to see a need and meet a need, and I, and I am inclined to think I've got a program that can meet that need, and I've got a solution for that problem, and I need to come under the Word of God and be reminded the sovereignty of God's grace and how outcomes belong to him. And yet, there is a ditch on the other side. Let me say a few things. Let me lay a, a brief rumble strip on that side of the tension as well. Here I want to help you answer the question, when does faith become foolishness and negligence? This is the rumble strip that the spiritual people need to know about. This is going to be real helpful for you if you self-identify as a prayer warrior. Now, it's good to be a prayer warrior. Okay, some of my best friends are prayer warriors. It's good to be a prayer warrior as long as you are also an actual warrior, right? It's good to pray for things. It's good to trust the Lord for things as long as you're also willing to work for those things. And these are the signs that you may be losing this tension in the other direction and falling into a different and yet equally destructive ditch. Number one, when prayer becomes a substitute for obedience. I've frequently had people over the years that I've been in ministry tell me they need to pray about something that in fact they do not need to pray about. Usually, and well, I shouldn't say usually, but often it has been the issue of should I date or marry a non-Christian, right? And then they, they come to me and, oh, pastor, I'm so conflicted. I've fallen in love with Bob or whoever, and, but Bob's a pagan and what do I do? And, and so I'll, I'll reason with them from Scripture. And then at the end of the meeting, they'll say, well, thanks, pastor. I appreciate your time. I'm just going to need to pray about that. I'm like... Why do you need to pray about that? What do you think God is going to say? Right? He's already told us in his word, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right? And if that wasn't clear enough in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That's pretty clear. You can get married, but only in the Lord, only to other believers. Do not be unequally yoked, period. And yet, I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me that they just need to pray about that. No, you don't. 
You, you don't need to pray about something that God has already spoken authoritatively into. In fact, that's a really bad idea. And it's really dangerous because what do you think happens when you pray to God about something he's already spoken to and will not repeat himself on and you wait for an answer? Who do you think fills that silence? I, and because here's what happens to me. This happens to me almost every time. Almost every time someone has said to me, well, pastor, I need to pray about that. They come back to me a week later and they say, I heard from the Lord. I'm like, hallelujah. What did he say? He, and it, it always, he said it was okay. Really? Really? He said it was okay. Yes. Wow. What email address are you using for God? He said it was okay. Actually, I remember having this conversation with a young lady who made a profession of faith. She'd been a former prostitute and using drugs and all this kind of stuff. And, and um, we were trying to work with her on a few things. And she, well, on a lot of things. But um, we had the... That piece, the sort of sex prostitute thing over here, that was, we're on top of that one. And then and we're getting to the drug piece. And uh, she said, um, well, I've prayed about it. And I think God's okay with me doing drugs. I don't, I don't think he is. And I said, oh, no, no, I've prayed about it. I, you know, I had a powerful spiritual experience. And I, and I really felt the Lord saying that, that this was okay. I'm not sure that was Jesus. Uh, you, you know, because, and I said, remember, we get lots of email, as it were, right? Messages from God, God's speaking into our hearts. They're not all from Jesus, but they're all signed from Jesus, right? That's why you have to take it and you have to test it against God's word. You say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I've, I've prayed about it and the Lord has given me the go-ahead on this issue. Yeah. I I don't think that's the case. That is the danger in going to God and asking him to clarify something he's already spoken about. God doesn't clarify. And God doesn't like it when we ask him if he'd like to reconsider his clear instructions. Moses found that out of the Red Sea, right? God had said, go, right? He said, "Go, go to this mountain. Here we go. The fact that there was a sizable body of water in the way was not interesting to God at all. And he got agitated when Moses asked him if he'd like to reconsider his directions. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 14, verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Why are you praying to me? Tell the people to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people may go through the sea on dry ground. The fact that the way forward looked difficult was not interesting. It was not determinative. It did not permit prayer to become a barrier or a substitute for obedience. Right, and, and normally, you know, most of the conversations I've had with, and, and oftentimes it's with young women who are, you know, 30 years old, 35 years old, and they're saying, all the good ones are gone and blah, blah, blah. And, and I went to the singles group and, whoa, there's a reason for that, right? And that's what they're saying to me. And, and they're saying, so I just think that I've prayed about it and, and, and God's saying, given the unique circumstances of where I'm at and the biological clock and the, our group, uh, that it's going to be okay for me to go in this direction over here. No, it isn't. The fact that the way forward looks difficult to you does not allow you to use perpetual prayer as a substitute for obedience. This isn't just an issue for young singles. It's an issue for every Christian. Sometimes we ask God for stuff that we really shouldn't and don't need to. 
C.H. Spurgeon, a great story about C.H. Spurgeon. He, uh, he used to host a prayer meeting for his deacons and elders. And one time this deacon came into the prayer meeting and said, you know, brothers, terrible things happened in our church. This man uh, has died and he's left behind a widow and some small children and they're in desperate straits and, and we need to pray for them. And C.H. Spurgeon said, no, we do not. He said, we will not ask God to do what he has clearly in his word told us to do. And he took his hat and he passed it to the deacon on the left. And he said, when we have two months rent and expenses in this hat, then we will pray for our dear sister. That's a man who understands the balance between the fight of faith and the rest of faith. That's a man who understands that prayer is never to be a shield from our Christian duty. We are called to care for widows and orphans in the Bible. James 1.27. We don't need to pray about that. We just need to do it. We will not ask God to do our duty for us. Rather, we will ask him to do our duty through us. Secondly, you may be veering into the ditch on the side when you begin to denigrate and despise normal means and agency. When I was an old youth pastor, uh, our denomination asked me to mentor some young youth pastors. And uh, one of the young men that I used to meet with drove me halfway to distraction, I must tell you. He was young and hip. He had a great haircut. He was super athletic and super spiritual. He was a charismatic character in every sense of the word, but I could never get through to him on the issue of study. And and I would ask him, I'd say, Bob, that's not his real name. He had a cool name. Not that there's anything wrong with the name Bob, if you're here with that, but I'm just saying he had a cool name. And uh, I'd say, Bob, why is it that you haven't completed your undergraduate degree? And he would answer with some super over-the-top spiritual-sounding thing like, I am striving to be approved by God and not men. (laughs) Wow. Right? That's impressive. Okay. And then I'd, I'd look at his shelves and I'd say, Bob, I can't help but notice that you don't have any books. How is it that you are preparing your messages? And he reached into his back pocket. I can still see it. He reached into his back pocket. He pulled out his tiny little New Testament that was all folded up. I'm sure he stayed at home at night creasing it. And uh, he pulled out this little New Testament and he held it up before my face and he said, this is the only book I need. And I just about wanted to punch him in the face. But thankfully in that moment, God blessed me with supernatural restraint because that is just about the most arrogant and ignorant thing I have ever heard. It really is. Now, of course, the Bible is the only authoritative source for all of life and ministry. Of course, the Bible is the final arbiter in every dispute of theology and ministry. I 100% 100 believe that. And yet the Bible itself says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It also says, Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Study. Keep a close watch on your teaching. How can you do that unless you're in the literature and the commentaries to know whether you're teaching something nobody else has ever taught? Right? And, and, and I've had that happen to me a couple times over the course of my ministry. I thought that I was being super creative and insightful. I thought I had seen something in this text nobody else had seen. And you, you preach on that for a little while. It's your little hobby horse. And then you get into the literature and you realize, huh, No one has ever said that. No one has ever interpreted this verse that way. In fact, the only people who have ever interpreted this verse this way did it 1,600 years ago, and they got burned at this stake. And you realize this is not a good teaching. 
and, 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 and you repent and you, and you realize this is, this is not good. And, 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 and as a discipline over time, you realize, and, and I do this now, I want to check. I want to check what I'm teaching against the history of how we've understood this verse. I want to ask the question, how did Hodge understand this, this issue? How did Spurgeon understand this? How, how did Calvin understand this issue? How did Calvin and Luther teach on this? How did Augustine understand this issue? How did the church fathers understand this? One doesn't want to be super innovative in one's teaching. That's not, that's not the goal. Ours is the business of passing on the faith once for all delivered to the saints, so we kind of want to know how the saints have passed this on. If all you needed was your New Testament in your back pocket, we wouldn't have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Do you understand that? Because they're keen on this as well. Study to show yourself approved, right? It is a sure sign that you are deep into the foolishness ditch when you begin despising normal and ordinary means. The ordinary means of making dumb people smart is study. That's the ordinary means. Now, God has ordained the ends, which means I am certainly not saying that that unless you've read a certain number of books or unless you've been to seminary, that God's not going to bless what you're doing. That is absolutely 100% what I am not saying. But neither does God bless people who are too lazy to do the work which is well within their ability to do. The Apostle Paul understood that he was massively grace-gifted by God. And yet, nevertheless, he worked harder than all the rest. So ought we to do. Do not despise ordinary means. And then lastly, you may be in danger of falling into this ditch when failure and suffering become incomprehensible and unbearable. Foolishly spiritual people are often completely undone by failure and suffering. Right? Because if you've been trusting God for that miracle, if you've been naming it and claiming it, if you've been calling into being things that are not, and then those things that are not never come to be, if you don't receive that healing, if you named it and claimed it, but it never came, then what does that do to you? What does that do to your faith? What does that do to your understanding of who God is? All of a sudden, in your mind, God cannot be large and in charge. Because you put the quarter in the Pepsi machine, you press the button and nothing came out. Creates a worldview fracture. I worry about all the people who have bought into the North American heresy that we're rich because God loves us and because we had faith or our grandparents had faith. What will happen to those people when in the providence of God we are given suffering, poverty, and hardship? Will 40,000 people still show up for church in Houston when they are not receiving their best life now. You see, just as it is wrong to assume that you doing it right will secure a positive outcome, that's the ditch on the other side, you assuming that just having faith will make everything work out is just as dangerous and deadly. Just have faith can be devastating counsel and advice because what if the cancer doesn't go away? What if your baby doesn't get better? What if your marriage is not restored? Now you have no grid for understanding that. We have to remember over here what we remembered over there. Outcomes belong to the sovereignty of God. So you can work over there and you can have faith over there and still not get the outcome that you desire. Things don't always come up roses 
in this life, either for people who work hard or for people who really trust. And that's why Job, a man who did it right and who believed it right, had to say in his suffering, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job says, one day I know God will come in all his fullness and he will sort out all the outcomes according to his justice and mercy. And I can wait for that day. Can you wait for that day? Can you work? Can you obey? Can you strive? Can you fight? Can you also believe and have faith and pray and remember and still suffer difficulty and failure and loss and yet trust the Lord and yet believe that God is good He is large and in charge and right. Because if you lose this tension, whichever way you lose it, it'll be very hard for you to do. When suffering and hardship and failure become incomprehensible and unbearable, you've lost this tension and you've fallen into the ditch and you need to go back and find it again. This is a hard road to hold. It's like that nasty shopping cart at Fortino's that as that strong wobble one way or the other. And that's why the Christian journey is a constant process of repentance. I talked about Martin Luther earlier. Most of you know that Martin Luther penned his 95 thesis and stuck it up on the, the door of the chapel at Wittenberg, Wittenberg, but maybe you've never read it. The vast majority of the content in those 95 theses is, is actually a, against a cheapened, understanding of repentance. Martin Luther's central thesis in the 95 thesis is that the Christian journey is a journey of perpetual repentance. That, that, that we, we wander along in our human frailty and we bump up against these rumble strips time and again to the left and to the right. And, and when we do, we need to fall to our knees. We need to repent. We ask for help. We seek counsel in the word. We submit to the grace of Christian oversight in the church. We delight in correction. And we get up and we walk again. We pray and we set a guard. We remember the Lord and we fight. We thank God for the grace that has made us who we are. This church, and and I say this not knowing a great deal about this church. All I really know about this church is that you call yourself Sovereign Grace Church. And that you sing lots of songs written by Bob Coughlin, who works at Sovereign Grace. So I assume that the principle of Sovereign Grace lies at the heart of your own self-understanding. Which means you believe that God is large and in charge. And that unless God awakens you from your deadness, you can do nothing. That even the faith to believe is a gift from God. You wouldn't call yourself Sovereign Grace Church if you didn't believe in that. Someplace very deep in your soul. I believe in that too. I believe that by the grace of God, we are what we are. Had God not awakened me, I would not be who I am. And I don't hold that just as a theological conviction. That is one of the most glorious and simultaneously painful truths in my life. I grew up in this town to good Christian parents who attended this church. They brought us here every Sunday. My dad, who, who became a Christian late in life, 
uh, in, his, in his 30s. He was figuring out the Christianity thing while he was raising us. He did his best. He, 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 he led us in family devotions. I don't remember anything he said. It, maybe it was super true. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. He was figuring it out as he went. He did the best that he could. They disciplined us. They set limits. They prayed for us. There were three of us. I'm the only one who's walking with the Lord today. So did my parents do it wrong? No, I think they, I think they did it right. Am I here because they did it right? No, because my brother and my sister are not. Why did God choose me? I have no idea. Not for anything in me. For some purpose that seemed good to him that is hidden from me. You know, there are secret things that belong to God. I just know what he's told me. And he didn't tell me this. What I know is that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And yet, his grace in my life is not an excuse for me to go home and hide in my holy hole and wait for the rapture. His grace in me is to do good works. Right? We are, do you remember Ephesians 2.10? We are what he has made us to be. Created in Christ Jesus. For what? To do good works, which he prepared in advance to be our way of life. So by the grace of God, I am what I am, and you are what you are. Now don't sit around. And don't go have a nap. Don't let go and let go. Let God pray and set a guard. Remember the Lord and fight. Thank him for his grace, and yet work harder than anyone else. Yet not I and not you and not us, but the grace of God in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.